we've got some things we haven't covered. We've talked about personalities. We've talked about uh, uh, lately in the 1700s, the Wesleys, and we talked about the start of the Methodist Church. But in the 16 and 1700s, some other things were taking place that were taking place at first on a very academic level with the scholastic people in the ivory towers. And it took it a while to work its way out and permeate through society. But that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I thought a good way to introduce the class for us, for our purposes, is to ask if any of you are familiar with either of these books, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, and then the response to it by Alistair McGrath, The Dawkins Delusion, um, a nice, uh, very thoughtful, measured response. The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins is a bestseller. Richard Dawkins is uh, um, either Cambridge or Oxford, I believe he's at Oxford actually, a uh, scientist who has written this book as basically a, an atheistic cry that any intelligent person could not really rightfully have faith in any kind of a deity or a god because there's simply no scientific basis, there's no rational reason, there's no logic behind having such a superstitious concept. And that's what his book is. And it's a bestseller. In response, there's another Oxford scientist who also teaches historical theology named Alistair McGrath, who wrote The Dawkins Delusion and said, you know, as a scientist, I'm very offended at the way the, the God Delusion was written because it's not really science, it's pseudoscience. And it's absurd for science to claim that there's no basis for science and faith to coexist. He says instead there's an absolute basis for the coexistence. And so I pose to you this question. Is there a science and faith tug of war? There are people who have taught through philosophy and other places that if we're going to be Christians, what we need to do is take the science part of our brain out, set it aside. And then for our faith, it'll live in a different realm. It'll be something different. So we'll have our faith walk and we'll have our faith in God and we'll have our Christianity. But it's not the same as the part of our brain that deals with science and deals with logic and deals with math and things of reason. These two are divided. Well, that mentality of dividing these two is really happening at least the beginning, this chasm starts in the 1600s. And that's what we're going to start dealing with today. But let me tell you as we deal with it, I want you to know at the outset my answer and my position. My answer and my position is a resounding no, there isn't a tug of war. I have a reasonable faith that's well balanced. My faith does not shun science. My faith is not a blind leap. My faith is not a chasm apart from the logical part of my mind. My faith is a part of a well-reasoned understanding of the world and the way it is. And it's not because I'm a science idiot. I, I deal with science all the time for what I do. What I do for a living as a trial lawyer means I try cases where I have had to, I've had to cross-examine Nobel Prize scientists. I spend a lot of time with doctors and medical issues. I spend a lot of time with physicists. 
I spend a lot of time with geologists. I spend a lot of time trying to understand enough to where I not only can can help put a witness on to explain something to a jury, but where I can cross-examine the best of the best and hold them accountable. I'm not a scientist by training, but I deal with science a lot. So it's not that I'm just a scientific idiot when I say I have a well-reasoned faith or a well-balanced faith. It's, it's the truth. Now, with that as background, I'd like to talk to you about the basics of my Christian faith. Then I want to talk to you about the medieval mindset, and I want to talk to you about the modern mindset. So the first is the basics of the Christian faith. This lays the groundwork for the class. Then we're going to deal historically with the medieval mindset and see the transformation to a more modern mindset and the results of that transformation. You with me? Okay, it's a rather long class, but I'm going to work myself to death to finish by noon. So fasten your seatbelts, put up your tray tables, pull your seats to an upright position because we're taking off right now, okay? Let's start with the Christian basics. Now, this, uh, this should be basic for all of us, okay? This is not like highfalutin, hard-to-understand stuff, but these are core Christian concepts. And the almost embarrassing part of this is the church didn't always understand these core concepts. And that's some of what's led to the troubles that we'll discuss in a little bit. So I want us to have the core concepts out here at the beginning. Core concept number one. God made humanity. And he made us to be in a relationship with him. That is a fundamental teaching of the Bible. It's a fundamental teaching of the creation account. God made humanity to be in relationship with God. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and spoke with them. God made man and he made man to be in a relationship with God. Everybody with me? Christian basic number one. Number two, when he made us, he made us finite. There were limits to us. We, we weren't like God in an infinite way. When it says God made us in his image, God does not mean that he made us infinite the way God is. We're very definite, finite people. We have bounds. There are limits to what we know, limits to what we can do, limits to who we are. We are limited, but he still made us, even though he made us finite, he made us perfect. Okay? Now, that's a Christian basic. Next Christian basic, through sin, we lost that perfection. Our minds no longer think the way they were made to think. Our spirits are no longer tuned in the way they were meant to be tuned in. Our willpower is no longer willpower that, that sustains us the way it should. The biblical word for this is that man is dead in his trespasses. But the concept, the Christian basic is, God made us perfect, finite, but perfect, to be in fellowship with him. Through sin, we lost that perfection, and we lost the fellowship with the perfect one. Because perfection cannot fellowship with imperfection. Does that make sense? Christian basic. Next, Christian basic. Through Jesus Christ, God has redeemed us. 
through a death of, of the old man, he's resurrected a new life that we can be a part of. Not by what we do, but by our faith and trust in him. And through that, we have a promise that while we're still living in the old body, we have a promise that this body will one day be gone and we will be given a perfect body again. We have a promise that this heaven and earth will be rolled away and there will be a new heaven and a new earth with perfection. We have a promise of what is to come. We have a guarantee of that promise with Christ inside of us. Okay, that's a Christian basic. So the Christian basic here, and this is very important, is we're still living in a body and a mind that's fallen. Though it's being renewed and we're growing, this body will never be our eternal home. Our eternal home will be another body that's more perfect, that is perfect. Does that make sense? It's a Christian basic. Now, next Christian basic. God has revealed himself to us. We didn't just stumble upon a vision of God. God, and doesn't it make sense that a God who's going to create us to be in a relationship with us will also reveal himself to us so that we can see and know him? That makes sense? So God reveals himself to us primarily through his son Jesus. I'm using stamps on the PowerPoint because it's kind of like he sent us the message. You know, it's something sent. God re- revealed himself to us. I, I, it was a reach, but I threw it in there. God has revealed himself. Hebrews says in Hebrews, the first chapter, the first three verses in these last days, he's revealed himself principally through his son. When we see Jesus, we see God. In Jesus, we have the heart of God. In Jesus, we have the love of God. In Jesus, we have the redemption of God. We see God when we see Jesus. You take what Pastor Fleming said this morning, we're the body of Christ. The world should see God when they see us. That's another class. He's also revealed himself through his word. You might say, well, Jesus is his word. Yes, he is. The final word was spoken. And that is Jesus. But he's also revealed himself to us through what we call Holy Scripture. And that is an account inspired by God of God's relationship with us through thousands of years. So we have God revealing himself to us. We have here in Scripture the Bible. We speak of the Bible as being inerrant. Let me suggest to you a good definition of what that means. The authority of the Bible, to me, is it's God's perfect delivery of God's message. And it is without error in what it claims to be. Now, the key to that is in what it claims to be. We have a gentleman in class who who has come up to me before and said, do you believe in inerrancy? I said, absolutely, I do. But it's inerrant in what it claims to be. So, for example, do not take the passage of Scripture that says God does not listen to the prayers of a sinner. and, And use it on me to say God doesn't listen to the prayers of sinners, which I actually heard a sermon on one time. And it was totally out of context. Well, that passage is what the Pharisees were saying. 
in a conversation with a man who has been healed by Jesus. And the Pharisees are saying, don't think that's God that did the healing because God doesn't listen to the prayers of sinners. Now, what does that mean to me? That means the Pharisees actually said it. I believe they said it. I think the word's inerrant. It's true. That was said. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't listen to the prayers of sinners. The Pharisee was wrong. Don't, don't go quoting the Pharisees and just because it got quoted in the Bible think it's right. All that means is the Bible is accurate when it says the Pharisee said it. That's the claim the Bible's making. The Bible's not making the claim that the Pharisee was right. Does that make sense? So we have to be careful when we read the Bible to understand what the Bible's claiming to be. Now, with all of that as background, point two. Let's go back in the medieval mindset, the Middle Ages. They were also called the Dark Ages because thinking was rather dark. Society really wasn't progressing much. In the Middle Ages, a time when most people could not read or write, a time when most people did not have a Bible, a time before printing presses, in the Middle Ages... Scripture itself, ah, choir's out. Y'all come on in, just make yourselves at home. All you've missed are the Christian basics. You should have known them anyway if you're going to sing in choir. Uh, (laughs) So come on in, we're talking medieval thought right now. Just make yourselves at home, we'll tread water for a moment while y'all do. Y'all did, by the way, an incredible job this morning leading us in worship. Thank you. I, uh, uh, I absolutely love to go to church. I love the worship music. I love the sermons. And it's just a wonderful thing. And uh, it's an honor to get to go to this church. A lot of you just come to our class and come from other churches. And your churches may be wonderful. And I say, God bless you. But if you ever get a chance, we have a wonderful service here. Um. Okay, the medieval thought was, this is a time where they don't have Bibles in common usage. In the medieval thought, the church interpreted scripture. The church interpreted faith. You want to know what you believe? You want to know what Christianity is? Don't go to the Bible. You go to the church. The church will dictate it to you. You disagree with the church? Change your mind. Because the church is right and you're wrong. That was the mentality. You don't challenge the church. This was not a time of education. This was not a time of schooling. This is not even a time until you hit it to about 900 or 1,000 where there are universities. This is a time where the thinking is set forward by the church. And everyone else follows. Now, the way people thought in that time period is if there is something we don't understand, that's got to be a God thing. Anything we don't understand, we must attribute to God. So, for example, we may know this right here. And on the PowerPoint, I've got a triangle for, or a mountaintop or a mountain. Here's something we know. We know definitely this. And we know something else over here, a second triangle. We know this. 
But all that stuff in the middle that we don't know, well, that just must be God. This is called the God of the gaps. Anything we don't know the reason for, we'll just say it's God. We know the reason why, um, uh, let's see, we know the reason why we tend to put on weight is because we eat too much and we don't exercise enough. Okay? But uh, we don't know why some people get um, cancerous lumps that grow. Okay, well, it's not attributed to what they're eating. It's not attributed to weight. So the God of the gaps idea is, well, we don't know why they get that. That must be a God thing. They must be cursed by God. See, anything during this time period that man didn't have a reason for, man would attribute to God. God must be the reason God fills up the gaps. So, for example, man doesn't understand why comets are sometimes in the sky. There are stars. There's a sun. There's the moon. But sometimes there are these bizarre comets. They must appear when God wants to send an omen. So a comet in the sky means God's sending a bad omen. This means some, something bad is happening. Or maybe it's something good. If you've ever heard of the Bayou Tapestry, it's a famous, famous, famous piece of art in British history. It was a big tapestry that was done after William the Conqueror invaded and conquered England in 1066. And the tapestry itself is the battle. And it shows William the Conqueror and it shows a big comet in the sky. And the reason why is the comet was a bad omen for the people inhabiting England and a good omen for William the Conqueror. It was God's signal that something was going to happen. And that's the way the people understood a comet. You with me? So this is the idea. So during this time, if you put it into a car terms, the church is driving the car. In the back seat, you got science and you got philosophy. And science is fine and philosophy is fine as long as you understand they're in the back seat. They only do what the church tells them they can. The church trumps science. The church trumps philosophy. The church trumps everything. This is why in 1633... This fellow named Galileo Galilei, who was a math professor at the University of Padua in Italy, who'd been looking through this telescope, newly invented, found the planet Jupiter. And through careful observation, figured out there are four moons of Jupiter, and they're all going around Jupiter. And he published it. And not only that, he published his reasoning that it looks like the earth actually goes around the sun. And he put forward his mathematic reasons for believing it. And in 1633, the church calls him to trial on the issue of heresy. Here's why the church's mentality at the time was, you have planet earth 
in the middle of the universe. It is earth that's in the center of all things. Earth is in the middle. And going around earth, you have the sun. And going around earth, you have the moon. But it's geocentric. Earth is the center. And the sun goes around the earth. And that's why you can see the sun come up in the east. And you can see the sun go down in the west. As it makes its circle around the earth. So the earth is in the center. The sun goes around it. The moon goes around it. And do you know what goes around all of that? What's the big glass enclosure that encloses the whole thing? It's the stars in space. They're the big glass enclosure. And this is what the church taught. You know what's outside of the, the, the glass enclosure, the stars in the universe? That's where God lives. That's heaven. By the way, do you know where hell is? It's inside the earth. This is a, I grew up still with that concept. I can remember going in my backyard when we lived in Memphis, Tennessee in first grade, deciding I was going to dig to China. I dug about two or three feet. I mean, I was getting close. And then it occurred to me, I'm going to have to go through hell to get to China. I quit digging. I was not a fool. That was the mentality. You remember, maybe you were here when we had our class on Dante's Inferno. Dante has descending into hell, into the center of the earth to find hell. Had his levels of heaven beyond the stars. That was the mentality of the church. So Galileo Galilei gets called in because he's changing it. And he's told what you're doing is contrary to Scripture. You're saying the world, earth, moves around the sun. But Psalm 93.1, Psalm 96.10, 1 Chronicles 16.30 all say the world is firmly established and can't be moved. How dare you say it goes around the sun? Not only that, Psalm 105 says that God set the earth on its foundation and it, the earth, can never be moved. You're a blasphemer, Galileo. Not only that, Ecclesiastes 1.5 says the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Now, Galileo was not a pagan. He was not a heretic. Galileo was not ignorant of the scriptures. Galileo believed that scriptures were written from the perspective of man. And they were written to communicate to man from his perspective. And from the perspective of man standing on the earth, the earth is stable. And the sun rises and the sun sets. We, scientifically, know the sun doesn't rise. And we know the sun doesn't set scientifically today in America in the 21st century. But you Google on the web, what time is sunrise in Houston? And it'll show you 80 different places and none of them put an asterisk by it saying the sun doesn't rise. The earth rotates. Okay, And it's not because we're offended that the Internet's lying. Oh, it says the sun rises. No, that's just the way. That's the communicated idea. 
There are psalms written in poetic fashion. And if you lose the poetry and you constrain God to writing in this narrow box, then you're doing God a disservice. He's bigger than your box. Galileo understood that, but Galileo was not allowed his own view of Scripture. And so he was convicted of heresy and sentenced to house arrest so that he couldn't spread it any further. This was the medieval mentality. You don't question the whys. You don't try to put together reasons. We know what the church tells us to know. And anything else that's a gap, you know, in in our gaps in knowledge, we see God filling in those gaps. Where the church tells us. But you don't, you, you accept that everything else takes a back seat. Church trumps all. Including your own walk with God and your own understanding of Scripture. That's the medieval mentality. Enter now this guy trained as a lawyer. Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes is born in 1596. He dies in 1650. Rene Descartes at the time that Galileo is on trial for heresy has also written his own book explaining how the earth rotates around the sun and decides... Yeah, I'm going to wait to publish that one until I'm dead. <laughs> Leaves instructions. Publish this one later. Descartes changed the way of thinking. Instead of saying, I will take what the church says and I will accept it on face value and use it to explain everything. Rene Descartes says, I'm going to doubt absolutely everything there is. Except what reason can prove. The church will not establish truth for me. Tradition will not establish truth for me. I will accept his truth only what is logical and reasonable and rational. That's why this is called the age of reason. Okay? If you read in modern philosophy at all... well, let me, Take that back. If you read philosophy, if you go to a college, any college, and you take a class in philosophy, it'll be divided up. There's classical philosophy. There's medieval philosophy. There's all sorts of different kinds of philosophy. There is modern philosophy. And I pulled seven modern philosophy books off my shelf to check. Every one of them starts with Rene Descartes. He is the father of modern thinking. The mentality that you and I have is a mentality that's not medieval. It's modern. It's one built off of Descartes' idea that I will accept what I can prove. You want to tell me that I got two apples and you're going to give me three more? And I'm supposed to have five apples? I'm not going to accept that on faith. I'm going to add it up. Two plus three equals five. Okay, I'll accept it now. But it's because I've I've done the math. That's his mentality. So, I, if, if, but now, let, let me tell you now. If you're going to doubt everything until it's proven, if that's what you're going to do, if you want to be Rene Descartes, you're going to doubt everything there is until you prove it. You've got to start with this question. What do I know is true? From that, I'll build on it. Okay, what do I absolutely know is true? Don't say... Uh, your mom's apple pie is great. 
Okay, I, I think I would come close to knowing that is true. Mom makes a phenomenal apple pie. Okay, if you've never had it, she sits right back there. Just go ask her to make you one. <laughs> My mom would do it. And it is, it is so good. I think. Is it really good? I was talking to Dale Hearn about this through the internet. And he emailed me back and says, you know, what do you really know? He says, you're really blowing this class if you don't put a Matrix slide in the PowerPoint. (laughs) Did you see the movie, The Matrix? Turns out none of this stuff's real. We're living in these little pods, powering super machines for computers that took over the world and let us live in a vision of what we think is going on because they want to sap us for our energy. Well, you start thinking, Descartes didn't see the matrix, but he starts thinking, how do I know this isn't a dream? I've had very vivid dreams. I'm the laughing stock of my wife because we, we, we have a, a, a bed that she likes to sleep on this side. And I'll sleep on this side until my dreams get so vivid, I just have to change. For some reason, if I'll change sides of the bed, my dreams aren't as vivid. And so I'll have to change sides of the bed and I'll sleep on the other side for, you know, a week or two until the dreams just get real vivid. And then I've just got to have a switch. Okay, she thinks that that's weird. (laughs) I dare say if I took a poll, probably 90% of y'all are the same way I am on this. (laughs) I take it by your laughter, the answer is yes. Now, Descartes sitting there and he's saying, how do I know anything is real? How do I know that this isn't all a dream? Albeit a very vivid one that's going to make me change sides of the bed when I finally wake up. But how do I know it's real? Well, he says, I know one thing's real. I'm thinking, aren't I? I think, therefore, I am. Cogito ergo sum in the Latin. I'm thinking, so I exist. I'll start with that, he says. That's one thing I know. I think, therefore I am. By the way, if you ever listen to Prairie Home Companion, the joke that no one ever got, that I laughed at hysterically, but I've told it and no one still laughs, so maybe it's not that funny. Descartes goes into a, uh, um, a bar and he orders a drink, and the bartender brings it to him, and he orders another one, and the bartender brings it to him, and then the bartender comes and says, Hey, uh, Descartes, we're about to shut down the register and all. Would you like one more drink before I do? Descartes said, I think not, and he disappeared. <laughs> um, I think, therefore I am. That's Descartes. He thought not. Boom, he disappeared. But... This idea that based upon that, he's going to logically build and believe only that which logic and reason can establish as being true. Only what logic and reason can validate. Only what, 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 if if two plus two equals four, he'll accept it, but he's got to build it off of that to accept it. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the dawn of the age of reason. This is the beginning of modern man. This is when people start saying, okay, we're going to think it through. We're going to use reason and we're going to use logic to come to our conclusions about reality. 
And so into this world comes Sir Isaac Newton, who uses mathematical formulas to and, and, and determines, you know, that's the guy who we always see the picture of the apple falling, you know, in gravity. Okay? Isaac Newton defines the law of gravity for us. He takes mathematical formulas to establish how the planets rotate around the sun and explain their elliptical orbits. He explains how the tides come and go based upon the gravitational pull of the moon and does it all mathematically. He radically changes the concepts of the world and explains it along mathematical, rational, reasonable lines. Sir Edmund Halley notices a comment. And he thinks, you know, historically, there was another one of those about 76 years ago. And if I go back in history, there was another one 76 years before that. In fact, you can go back to 1066 and you can see in the Bayou Tapestry a comet. Maybe comets aren't an omen for God. Maybe comets are rationally explained by something, at least one of which is pretty bright and ever 75 to 76 years seems to go through our sky. I'll bet you it's coming again. I'll bet you in 1682. And that's Halley or Halley's Comet, named after him. It did indeed reappear 16, 17 years after his death, as he predicted. Now, the problem with this is, of course, if God had been in that gap, when you fill in that gap with knowledge, some people start saying, where's God? Because their faith was based upon this idea that God lives in the gap. And if the gap's got a reasonable explanation, well, maybe there's no God. You take this reasoned approach that I'm going to be logical about everything. And if I'm going to be a skeptic and I'm not going to believe it unless I can establish it through logic, cool, cold, crisp, clear reasoning. Then you take a fellow like John Locke. Wrong John Locke, excuse me. Then you take a fellow like John Locke. Who puts a different spin on this. John Locke says, yeah, I like this idea of reason. We're going to be logical people. Gone are the dark ages. We're now modern. And we think with logic and we think with reason and we think with rationality. But not just when it comes to matters of comets in the sky and moons and tides, we think of, we'll apply this same reasoning to philosophy. And let's think philosophically what's real and what's not, and let's only believe what we can reasonably establish. Let's apply this to politics. Because the politicians, the kings have been telling us they rule because God put them in place to rule. That they have been divinely appointed and they're God's representative. Let's test that by logic. And let's even apply it to our religion. Let's test the Bible. Let's test the church authority. Let's even test belief in God. And out of this movement grows a religious belief system called deism. Deism was the belief system that there had to be a creator God. 
But he created the world and all of its natural laws and all of its processes. And then he just checked out. And he doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. He just left it like making a watch and lets it run on its own. He wound it up. He put it together. And now it exists. And it just runs on its own. And that's what deists believed. To a deist, Jesus Christ was not the Son of God, by the way. That'd be God entering into the world and doing something. God has nothing to do with the world after he made it. There's a creator, but the world lives on its own. The Bible is not a Bible. It's nothing special. Because that would involve God's inspiration to the deist. And the deist didn't believe in that either. This rationalism also gave rise to atheism. Ooh, all of a sudden, it was really smart to be an atheist. Ooh, we're going to be modern. We won't believe in God. Which was just a step away from deism. But this rationalism also gave rise to praise for God because there were well-reasoned people like Sir Isaac Newton, even though he didn't believe in the Trinity, but still well-reasoned people who said, gee, look how incredible God is. He's made this world so phenomenal that he's got comets that show up on time. He's made this world so incredible. As one guy in the Enlightenment wrote, he said, if I'm walking along in a field and I stumble upon a rock, eh, I don't think much of it. The rock belongs in the field, doesn't it? I mean, you stumble on a rock, you don't think much. It's not like, whoa, there's a rock. Wow. You know, that's, that's rocks belong there. He says, but if I'm walking along in a field and I stumble upon a watch, and I look down, I see this complicated watch with all of its pieces. I start thinking, wonder who lost their watch. Or I wonder who put this watch here. Because that watch would never exist on its own. That watch is too complicated, too designed, too purposeful to just fortuitously appear in the universe. Right there in the field. He says, that's the way all of this science is showing us. It's showing us something so complicated, so incredible, so phenomenal. That like Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars that you've created, yet you're mindful of man and you've made man. It's that kind of a concept. So a lot of people read this, see this, follow this and praise God from it. Lots of effects on this in society. Good effects. The American Revolution comes about. And you examine the rights of government. And if God has not divinely appointed that king and ordered that king of England to rule over us, then all of a sudden, through logic, and the readings of John Locke, Thomas Paine, and others, the American people start saying, wait a minute. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, we're going to be a government by the people, for the people, not one based upon this premise that the king of England's got God's sanction to rule over us and we're rebelling against God Almighty if we rebel against the king. And so you have the American Revolution. You have the French Revolution too. French Revolution, that wasn't a good effect. 
Because they not only got rid of the king, they got rid of the church. They kicked the church out of France till Napoleon brought it back. They killed like thousands and thousands and thousands with the guillotine. Because in their well-reasoned mind, they thought that was appropriate. The effects on the church. We'll go into more detail, I think, with these next week. But let me give you a forecast. The effects of the church is the rise of liberalism. I've stolen for the PowerPoint a picture off of a cover of Francis Schaeffer's book, The Great Evangelical Disaster. Because I think that picture shows the way the foundation under the church has been eaten away. And the church building looks wonderful for everybody. But if you notice the foundation eaten away, people who are just happy to see their church building looking so nice and shiny with a green lawn don't realize how precariously it sits if it doesn't have a proper foundation. And of course, the foundation for the church is Christ. And God will see that his church is here until he comes and redeems us. We have that assurance. But as Pastor David said this morning, our job is to go out there and to bring people to be the message, the body of Christ, and to bring people into contact with who Jesus is and the reality of his presence here. And we can't do that if we're blind to the fact that for a lot of people, there's not an adequate foundation for them to be in a church. And that happens as a result of this. Because what we see through all of this is, first, uh, writers... In the name of Christianity, and I use air quotes around it if you're listening to this on the internet. Writers start saying, well, miracles are impossible. You read the miracles in the Bible? Never happened. Why are they impossible? Because you just can't take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people. Well, that's why it's called a miracle. (laughs) You know? But to the reasoned mind of the age that's impossible because we're skeptical of anything and we won't agree with anything we won't believe anything unless it adds up from what we know so miracles are discounted and once you get rid of the miracles in the bible the bible itself is seen as rather unnecessary and absurd this is a picture of thomas paine he wrote common sense if you take american history In the schools, you'll learn of Thomas Paine because he's one of the principal intellectual forces behind the establishment of our country. He also wrote a book called The Age of Reason. And in the book, The Age of Reason, he says, the most formidable weapon against errors of any kind is reason. I've never used any other. Reason is all I believe in. And then in this book, he says the following, the Bible, the fall of man, the account of Jesus Christ being the Son of God, of His dying to appease the wrath of God, of salvation. They're fabulous inventions. The only true religion is deism. Upon this only, so far as religion is concerned, I rested all my hopes of happiness hereafter, so say I now, and so help me God. (laughs) This is a denial of... Uh, from all of this, also the doctrine of original sin. Got to deny that. Why? Because Christian basic says, original sin, the fall of man, our thinking is clouded. To the rationalist, reason trumps everything, and we're all able to think rationally and reasonably. They've never met a few people I've met, I might add. They might change their tune. But they're saying that everybody can think logically, rationally, And cool, crisp, cold logic prevails. The Christian mentality is, the Christian belief system is, no, 
We don't always think as clearly as we should. Our thinking is darkened, absent God's revelation and work within us. So the rationalists have to get rid of the doctrine of original sin because it kind of invalidates their reason trumps everything. Does that make sense? Uh, The problem of evil, good and evil, is uh, dispelled during this time period. And as a result of this, evil seen as a Christian problem. How could you have evil if there's a good God? That's a sign there's not a good God. And all of these arguments get started. Um, Scripture is no longer Scripture. Uh, And then begins the search for the real Jesus. The mentality of these scholars is, okay, if Scripture's not real in any inspired sense, and the miracles aren't real, who really was that fella that ultimately became the legend, Jesus Christ? Are we able to go back and use our critical brains and construct and find out anything definite about the original person that became the legend? Now, the sad part is, ladies and gentlemen, even today, you can go to bookstores. I'll bet you I could go to Grapevine and find some commentaries by people who still have this mentality that are written in the name of Christianity. Our children can go to schools that are called divinity schools that teach this. I've attended lectures at divinity schools that teach these things in the name of Christianity, though they are far from Orthodox Christianity. So our points for home. I want to tell you, reason is valid. I'm not up here saying, oh, gee, I want to be a Christian, so I'll quit believing in reason and rationality. Oh, no. Those of you who know me know that I'm as big a skeptic and cynic as walks the planet in many areas of my life. Lewis can tell, he's up here nodding his head. That's right. But I want to tell you something. Reason is valid. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There is consistency in God. God made the universe to work. Jesus is the ultimate logos, Greek for logic or word. That's what John says. But the mentality that we have in our faith is, as Paul says in Romans 12, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, our minds, reason's good, but we don't think reasonably absent God renewing our minds. It's God that helps us think reasonably. You think about it in your life. You can find people in your life, people you love that are close to you, people that you don't want so close to you. You can find people whose thinking is darkened and they need God to come in. Lewis spends a lot of time, I'll bet, counseling people. I'm one of them probably that that needs to hear this, that there are areas in my life where my thinking is clouded by my sin. And I would think a lot clearer and I would think a lot more rationally and I would be a lot better for God if I, as as I let him renew my mind. As as Pastor Fleming said, as we take those steps and move down the continuum. We as Christians, we believe in reason and revelation. It's not just reason alone. It's reason with revelation. The fear of the Lord's the beginning 
of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Christian mentality is that God had to intervene in history. God had to step in and reveal Himself to us, primarily through His Son, also through Scripture. God did that. And this doesn't mean now that we, we, we're unreasonable people, that there's this tug of war between logic and faith. It doesn't at all. It is faith that opens our minds to think clearer, that gives us insight, that gives us wisdom, that gives us understanding. Our reason then confirms what we believe. Paul wrote to the Colossians and he said, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human traditions and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. But you build your faith on Jesus Christ. You read Scripture. You follow the reasonable orthodoxy of our belief system. And you don't find yourself without reason. You find reason saying, Amen. Now that makes sense. Now I really can, with Thomas Paine, say, so help me God, and actually have meaning behind it. If you take belief alone, if you just take reason, without God's enlightenment, you don't have light. Because the world through wisdom doesn't know God. God's had to intervene, but that doesn't make wisdom irrelevant. That makes wisdom true wisdom. That gives you a basis for true belief. So my last point for home. Reason with understanding is the logical answer. We will talk about this more next week. Because I want to invite you to invite people that you know who struggle with the tug of war to this class next week. I want to give us... I'm going to examine in some more detail some of the historical writings of some of these figures and try and give well-reasoned responses. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for the chance to teach this class. I thank you for each person here, young, old. I pray your blessings on them. I pray that your spirit will renew our minds. I pray that those people who question and doubt you, your existence, your love, your commitment to us, will open themselves up to your teaching to your ministry in their spirit and in their lives. That they will move out in conviction of their faith. Even in the face of their doubts. And as they do so, Lord, it is my prayer that you will continue to renew their minds. So that they can see how reasonable and logical and faithful you are. Through Jesus Christ. Amen.